Welcome back to the Trojan Talk podcast for the second time this week. That's right, you're getting two podcasts this week because this might be the last week of the season where there's a lot of intrigue and attention and interest. So on Monday, we brought you USC redshirt senior defensive end Nick Figueroa and the LA Times' Brady McCullough to talk about the coaching search and rivals recruiting analyst Adam Gorney. Today, we shift the focus to the matchup to rivalry week, USC, UCLA. And to do that, we bring in, you know who it is, the former USC quarterback, our Trojansports.com analyst, my trusty co-host, Max Brown, back on the show. Max, how are you? I'm good, Ryan. That's quite the lineup you got. You got uh, all the USC football bases covered there. That's what we do here. Uh, before we get into all this stuff, I just have had fun tracking your season. You've been on the road a bunch this year, and you were in Corvallis last weekend for Oregon State Stanford. What's the experience been like, and have you gotten more and more comfortable in that role do, doing these broadcasts each week? Yeah, man, it's been a cool fall. Yeah, and I owe you know fan bases like this and the loyal listeners of, of, of a podcast like, like we've been doing the past couple of years for uh, the, the climb this past year a little bit. It's been fun been traveling around doing some conference usa games some mountain west games done a couple of each there and then uh, a few pac-12 games as well so last week i was in corvallis for calling oregon uh, oregon state stanford hung out with david shaw jonathan smith a little bit and no it's been been fun feel a lot more comfortable and excited uh, for what's ahead what's the best piece of advice or lesson you've learned through doing this this season that's a good question um I mean, this might be a little corny, but it holds true that the preparation's key. I mean, that's one thing that, I mean, a lot of us sports fans, we see a Joel Klatt, we see a Yogi Roth, we see a Kirk Herbstreit calling games on Saturday nights, but the prep that goes in on the back end of knowing each and every roster every single week, the nuances of their depth chart, like, Ryan, it's one thing for us to break down a roster every week that we know in the USC Trojans, but doing that every single week for a new roster has been—it's been awesome. But it's a lot of a lot of work behind the scenes, so got to stay uh, prepared. Which hey, that's a lot like my uh, quarterback days. So I guess it goes hand in hand there. Absolutely. Well, you of course are here to break down this matchup for us, but we'll get to that on the back end of the podcast. Want to cover some other points before we get to the the game breakdown? And let's just start with rivalry week: USC UCLA. You went through a few of these during your time in the program. What are your best memories from this rivalry week? It, not, not even the game per se, but just just the week and anything around this game. Yeah, I think the the air on campus has a different level of buzz. I can remember being around like some of the the, the rivalry traditions, and I mean, you're walking out the Monday practice, and the 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 sword is duct taped, so no uh, students, you know, spray painted and things of that nature. And Tommy Trojans protected a little bit and hanging out with the students that. Um, protect protect Tommy Trojan was uh, was fun. The kickoff, the week of the game of like burning the bear or whatnot. Not sure if that's still going on with COVID, but uh, there was just a different buzz on campus. Uh, I wasn't a local LA guy, so I didn't have the you know seven on seven ties or the high school teammate ties. But I still certainly felt that uh, hey, this was a different week, and uh, it started on campus just with the uh, the buzz within school for sure. Yeah, it was interesting. You know, obviously this has been a lost season, a wayward season. There hasn't been much to get up for 
but there does seem to be a little bit more this week. In fact, there was a quote from Chris Steele after practice Wednesday that's <laughs> So after practice Wednesday, Chris Steele goes, Today was the most energetic I've seen this team in a long time. Everybody seems really excited. Shoot. This is the first time in a long time I've seen that many dudes out that early to practice. Exactly. I mean, that's one thing about where the season's going. This is always the, the game you get up for. And I know when I played, uh, those were some of UCLA's best years, too. So those were the years where they're saying, hey, this is our shot to, I mean, at that time it was overtake SC. I mean, my, my front end of my uh, SC times, it was the Brent Huntley days. And I would say arguably the second best defense that we ever faced during my time. I mean, um, those UCLA defenses had a bunch of a bunch of guys in the NFL, and uh, it's a game game you get up for. I think this year it's a little bit of role reversal in that I feel like UCLA has more at stake, just given that they've had a better season. But even as I say that out loud, I throw it out the window. All, both these teams just want to go one and zero and have a better taste in their mouth at the end of the season. I think Dante Williams has gotten the best of you there with with the one and zero infiltration. He's sure, I'm, hanging out. I'm, I'm hanging out with him uh, every week. I guess he's rubbing off on me. <laughs> uh, yeah, UCLA six and four, four and three, qualified for a bowl game for the first time in the Chip Kelly era. USC four and five, three and four in the conference, and needs to win two of the last three to make a bowl game. I was going to ask you who you thought had more at stake this week, and I agree with you. I think it's UCLA. I don't think that USC is going to get to a bowl game. Then again, it would really be nice to get a win and just put any kind of positive late in the season here and avoid what could be. If they don't, if they don't win another game, this will be the worst USC football season since 1991, the last time they finished with fewer than five wins. So there are stakes. You'd like to avoid that kind of history, I guess, for lack of a better word, but UCLA probably has more more at stake overall, but we'll see how the teams rise up for the game. Max, one more comment from this week. We talked to Tyler Orlando on Wednesday, and he's obviously only been in this game once. It was last year. He said, you know, even though there were no fans in the stadium, it was, it was an empty stadium, it still felt like a different game than the rest of the games. You couldn't tell it from watching it on TV, but if you were in there, it just felt like you know both teams were throwing their best punches. There was a higher level of intensity. Uh, the hits seemed a little harder. It felt different. Is there any other example that you can give the, in a way that this game did seem a little bit bigger, a little bit different than just the the week to week? That's a great question. And uh, yeah, I remember. I think it was my last year at SC when we played UCLA on the road. Uh, maybe my second second to last year at uh, SC. I remember T. Martin getting in a fight with UCLA's receiver coach uh, on the field pregame. Not a fist fight, but a verbal fight. And as you can probably imagine, the receivers were backing him up. And um, I, that was the UCLA DB coach. I'm blanking on his name. I think he's the things with Arizona now. He's been at I feel like every Pac-12 uh, stop. But anyways, like. That type of altercation is not happening when USC plays Cal or, you know, USC plays Arizona State. I mean, maybe it does now with some of the recruiting battles with the Sun Devils and Trojans, but I say that because walking out for warm-ups as a quarterback, seeing your coach get into it, when that's a hard no-no usually throughout the week, that's where I knew it was a little bit different. So, hey, maybe keep your eye on on Kerry Colbert Colbert, uh, a little bit there. He would not be my pick to be starting fights, but we'll see. <laughs> He's like the nicest dude ever. 
And it's funny too. You mentioned uh, like who has more at stake, and I think it's definitely UCLA. But thinking back on their schedule too, both these teams walk into this game. I think a little bit disappointed with where they're at. I know UCLA is like excited for getting to a bowl game, but being six and four after the big win against LSU, I think momentum was riding high there. They did. They had a big win against Stanford, but outside of that, they don't beat ASU. They, did, they weren't able to get one done against Oregon. It feels like, you know, and, and Utah as well. Like, they 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 won the games they were supposed to and then lost the games they were supposed to, I guess. And so, I guess Bruin fans probably, their, their temperament is not as stoked with uh, their position as well. So, both teams, you know, kind of walking in here, not as punk with their footing. Yeah, I want to kind of go through their schedule when we get into the game breakdown. Right it's really been a topsy-turvy up and down the year for them. But anyways, I, I guess I'm just being hopeful that this game will feel a little different and that, that there will be a little extra juice involved and that uh, even if just for a day we can kind of, you know, feel like it matters and that there's something on the line. So that's my hope for Saturday and to have fans back in the Coliseum. Uh, hopefully it's a better crowd than we've seen all season. We shall see. Well, Max, plenty else to discuss this week. Jackson Dart makes his first collegiate start. Obviously, he played most of the Washington State game, but he didn't start. He came in after that first series. And, of course, we had the QB rotation the last two weeks that, by default, with Keaton Slovis out injured, they now get away from that rotation, and Jackson Dart will get to start and play the whole game if healthy. What are you most excited about to see from Dart in this first start? I'm excited to see him play with the gunslinger mentality. I think that's the biggest advantage by naming Jackson the starter early on is, I mean, he's a youngster. He's going to make mistakes. And the hardest part when you're sharing time is, hey, if I make this mistake, then, hey, I might not get another chance on the field. Or then the next guy's come in, you might, you, might, you might play a little bit more tense. Well, now Jackson knows he's the dude. And he had that same mentality against Washington State as well, because obviously Keaton went down. And so if you go out there and make a mistake, he's not sitting there thinking, oh, I might get benched, or oh, I might not get another drive, that type of thing. And UCLA's defense, they do a lot on the back end. I would be willing to bet that Jackson's going to throw an interception in this game. And so when that does happen, how does he respond? Well, it's a lot easier to respond when you don't have someone over your back. So that's what I'm most excited about, just to see him play carefree and uh, – Uh, or concern-free, I guess I should say. And I'm also excited, hey, it's been two weeks since we've seen real-life football. Where's that knee at for him? Is that an added element? I thought he looked, you know, fine versus ASU, but is there even an added wrinkle there? And, hey, if if Jackson's a signal caller come next year, which I think we're both in agreement that's probably the path that's heading for next year, I think games like this go a long way to minimizing the learning curve come next year and, having him uh, not miss a beat come week one of 2022. Yeah, I'm going to be very interested personally to see if they let him use the full arsenal of his skills, and by that I mean uh, being mobile and running the ball, if they if they are comfortable enough with that knee to let him just play freely or if there's going to be some limitations placed upon him. Uh, I'm dropping a big story on Jackson Dart on Friday that kind of looks back at the fact that it's really interesting that his recruitment went down to the wire, and in the end it was USC and UCLA, and he was really torn. He was going back and forth between the two. And it's just kind of ironic that his first start now comes against the Bruins. And he didn't really want to get into that very much this week after practice. He just said, yeah, it's kind of crazy. 
But uh, I talked to to his dad and got some more perspective. And I, I already knew most of the backstory, but I just wanted to get some fresh fresh reflections on that and make for a good story on Friday. But also in that conversation, his dad mentioned to me that Jackson used the impromptu bye week last week to go back home to Utah for a day and got some soft tissue muscle treatment on his knee. So he was seeking a little extra treatment just to do everything he could to get it as close to 100% as possible. That tells me that maybe it's not 100%. Um, I don't know what percentage it is. It's probably close because they certainly don't seem to be hesitant about using him. And Graham Harrell even said this week that, you know, early on when he would ask Jackson, how's the knee, he, he did say that, you know, coach, rolling to the left, that's it's a little tough. And then more recently, he's he said, no, there's no limitation now. I can do everything. And and Graham even said that, you know, we expect him to be the guy that we recruited, which was a dual-threat quarterback. So I'll be curious to see that. Um, and just I think he has created such high expectations for this start because of that Washington State game. I mean, even though we saw him the last two weeks in that rotation role, it was a little up and down, a good game against Arizona, not so great against Arizona State. Fans remember that week three game at Washington State where he just lit it up, 390-plus yards, four touchdowns off the bench, and that's kind of the bar for him. I wonder how much the outside expectations are going to be a factor and kind of be maybe if he has to press or he has to live up to that. I'm just curious about the psychological aspect of that and how that carries into this game. I think it's a great point. Yeah, it'll be uh... – a good reality check for us fans of hey, where it truly is yet. Because at the end of the day, he's still a youngster. I mean, he went out there and balled versus Washington State, but I think the the UCLA secondaries, uh, they're not groundbreakingly better, but they are better, so it'll be a, a steeper test. And it's also interesting to sit here, because Ryan, when we first started doing this podcast, I mean, a lot of that talk was, you know, young Keaton Slovis, young Keaton Slovis, and about his growth and his development. And, I mean, if, if I was going to Vegas... Is that the last we've seen of, of Kate, Keaton Slovis in a USC uniform? Which is kind of crazy to say, just with only three weeks left and that injury and but that coaching staff not wanting to go back to a two-quarterback system and assuming Jackson does well um, and with only so many games left. Like, is that the end of, uh, end of an era? It'll be interesting to see. But I think at the end of the day, no matter how Jackson plays against UCLA, I do think he's a, a bright spot moving forward. And... He's a stud, but hopefully he finds success to springboard him into next year. Well, you kind of teased the next topic I wanted to get to, which is the future of Keaton Slowis. Before we do, just kind of predictions within the game, predictions for Jackson Dart. You said already that you think he'll throw a pick. He'll be that gunslinger. I feel the same way. I think he's going to be very aggressive and take his shots. And in so doing, there will be you know some throws he wants back, some throws that are maybe dangerous but also some big plays. I think that's just going to be his makeup. Although in high school, he didn't throw many picks, and he was very proud of that, that he did not throw a lot of interceptions, very few actually. But, you know, it's a different level here, and, you know, in his first fullish game in week three, he did throw two picks. So I think it will be a very aggressive passing game. And just remember the last two times USC has played UCLA, you know, for, for all the criticism of Graham Harrell, he has really had the Bruins number. Go back to 2019, they win 52-35, to and Keaton Slovis passes for 515 yards, four touchdowns, no picks. That was the game where they had four 100-yard receivers. And even last year, they got behind and had to rally back for that 43-38 win. 
But Slovis throws for 344, five touchdowns, and two picks. So this has been a very conducive matchup to the USC passing game. UCLA ranks 113th right now against the pass, giving up 267.2 yards a game. So everything is lined up for Jackson Dart to kind of grow his legend a little bit this week. And I'm going to predict that we see – you know what? I'm going to, I'm going to predict we see 300-plus yards, three touchdowns, and one or two picks. I like it. I like the uh, the optimism. I'm a, I'm a little bit more uh, hesitant uh, for a couple reasons. One, I really like what their defensive coordinator does, Jerry Azanero, when it comes to pressures. And I think that's a big reason why dating all the way back to the LSU game, but even in, in Pac-12 games as well, Oregon versus Anthony Brown, I think the Bruins have the capability to really confuse opposing quarterbacks. I mean, their defensive blitz package can get uh, can get long. And I have a feeling, hey, you're sitting in the UCLA meeting room right now. You're saying, all right, they got a true freshman quarterback. Hey, he did really well against Wazoo. And Wazoo, you know, in many respects, kind of hung back there a little bit. Hey, let's come after him. Let's get after him. And that could lead to some mistakes. And I also think if you're Graham Harrell, you're watching the film of UCLA and when UCLA gets punished, it's it, it can be on the ground. I, I don't think their front four is uh, incredibly groundbreaking. I think they're athletic on the back end, but I do think this is a front four where, hey, McGuire and uh, and Graham have to be saying, let's run the rock, let's get him going, let's get Keontae going, see how he's see how see how he is health wise and whatnot. But I think those two factors, the favorable run game and the blitz packages that UCLA can do, I don't think it'll be an absolute field day for Jackson, but I'm going two TDs, two picks. I forget if you said 300 or 400. I think he's hovering right there at 300 yards. Yeah. But when, when SC needs it, it's going uh, to be the ground game uh, on Saturday. Very good points, and, and there was a lot of talk this week about that UCLA pass rush and pressure and that – that's going to be a really good test for Jackson Dart. Also, it's going to be a different offensive line. Well, not different from the last game, but uh, you know, not what we've been used to all season. In practice this week, Andrew Voorhees has been the first team left tackle. Cortland Ford is back after missing a game, but he's been working with the second unit. And maybe that change midweek and, and we'll see a different look. But uh, all signs were looking like it would be Andrew Voorhees at left tackle and Justin Dietrich at left guard. And then Neelan, Liam Jimmins is back, and Jalen McKenzie is, you know, kind of reinstalled as the starting right tackle. So it'll be a big test for Voorhees, who has been a guard his whole career and is now um, being forced outside. We'll see how much they rotate and, and get those young guys work. Both Ford and Monheim worked with the second unit this week. So that's definitely a key area in the matchup to watch for. It's also worth calling out real quick, too, of uh... – Hey, SC's a, one of many or one of very few teams that rotates offensive linemen throughout the games. Playing seven offensive linemen, well, when you have a scenario like this, it cert- certainly helps, minimizes the uh, adjustment needed. So credit McGuire and Clay McGuire and Graham for, for doing that over the course of the season. It certainly helps in a week like this when those guys are called upon full time. No, it's a great point. It's a great point. Well, let's have the Keaton Slovis discussion. I just think it's been so unfortunate what's happened to him and uh, really the way that everyone's reacted to it. And, you know, we, we could have had the Jackson Dart excitement without the Keaton Slovis vitriol. You know, they're, they're not mutually exclusive. We could, have, we could have maybe not rained down on Slovis so much this year while still being 
highly optimistic for Dart. I just think about a guy who, like you said two years ago, like he was the future of the program. Everyone was sky high about Keaton Slovis' potential. This out-of-nowhere breakout freshman season, he's getting some fringe Heisman talk for future years. Goes through an up-and-down season last year, but you know comes through in a clutch in, in all those games except for the Oregon game, obviously. Uh, so still on the whole, a solid season. And now has to go through the back half of his junior season as a three-year starter, as a former first-team All-Pac-12 quarterback, getting subbed out of games, for having fans cheer loudly and tellingly when Jackson Dart comes in the game as if this is the guy we want, sit the veteran. And now an injury to his lower leg. We don't know what the injury is. He had a sleep on his left knee the first part of the week. He didn't have it on Wednesday, but wasn't practicing. And you wonder if it's just been a decision, like you said, to maybe sit him down the rest of the way or to at least go all in on Dart. I personally, I feel bad for Slovis. I I just think, I th- I think that he was he was done done wrong in this lost season. USC wasn't playing for anything these last couple of weeks. It certainly served nobody's interest that QB rotation. And I can tell you that I've talked to several people about it, and that's kind of the consensus is like, what, what were we doing here? That this this wasn't good for anybody. It's just been a really unfortunate way that he's been handled. And again, it's not that I don't think that Jackson Dart might be better or that might be better right now. But there was a better way to handle this. Now Keaton Slovis' future is really up in the air. Does he transfer somewhere? Does he take his shot in the draft and trust that he can go to the combine and pro day and make an impression and, and get into the league this year? I don't know what the answer is at this point. I, before the season, I would have told you there's no doubt he's getting drafted. Um, I personally still would draft him. I think the talent's there. You know, somewhere in the middle of the late rounds, but I don't know if that's going to happen. And I don't know what his play is. Max, if you're Keaton Slovis right now, A, what are you thinking about all this? And B, what is your next move? Yeah, those are all good points, uh, Ryan. I, I echo everything you said. I think I'm Keaton Slovis right now. I'm, I'm frustrated. I'm, I'm pissed off. I, I think he, he definitely looks back on in terms of, man, I'm, I'm a better quarterback than the position he's in right now in terms of having to – fight for his job, future unclear, things of that nature. If I'm Keen Slovis, though, I think he's a, uh, a typical grad transfer candidate. Um, I don't think NFL is on the radar for him. If, if I'm him, I think he's right now, what, a middle-round middle, middle round quarterback type of guy, yet he has the talent where if he goes to a, a school, has a, a big-time year. I think he can catapult up to – Maybe not first round, but at least uh, you know a guy that's being talked about at the top of uh, top of a class. I think it's a good reminder for all of us of just hey, the, the blessing and the curse of the quarterback position in that it isn't always your individual talent that prevails. So often it is the surroundings that you put yourself in that elevates or deteriorate to de- deteriorate your your standing as a quarterback. And I think early on, and this is probably a good reminder for all of us. The surroundings for Keaton were extremely favorable. He had four NFL receivers as a youngster. I remember saying this on this podcast of, for a young quarterback, I think he had an incredibly conducive offense to finding success through the air as a true freshman. Like The, the reads were relatively easy. The, the picture was clean at times. And I think that allowed him to have more success 
as a true freshman quarterback at USC relative to other true freshman USC quarterbacks in the past that had to take on more complex offenses and offenses that were less pass heavy. And I say that because as a result, we flash forward two years later and I think he tapped in to his ceiling quicker than other USC quarterbacks. And as a result, it kind of threw us all for a shock because we didn't see that huge progression from year one to year two and then year two to year three. Having said all that, though, I think he's a talented dude. I think he is free agent number one in the transfer portal if it happens, if he got into the portal tomorrow. There is some elite team that's a quarterback away that's going to be making their first recruiting call to Keaton Slovis. And us SC fans this time next year could very well be having a similar JT Daniels moment of, and I think Keaton's better than JT Daniels, um, a similar moment of, hey, he's leading the top five, top ten team. Uh, we'll see where SC's at at that, at that point. And we're all kind of, you know, scratching ourselves on, on the head for why we were so critical of, of Keaton. So, I think he's uh, a great quarterback. I think the surroundings, I mean, I, I hadn't even touched on the whole Helton deal. Um, and I, I, I think that obviously hurt him as well because the team itself wasn't very good. And so, Keaton, you have every reason to be optimistic about the future and every reason to be pissed off about your current standing. That being said, I do think he can't blame everyone on the, the outside. I, I do think... The, the fact that he was not a captain as a three-year starter is a head-scratcher for me. Um, if we're just calling a spade a spade, I think that, that is a, a bit of a red flag in terms of why that never happened, and I, will, I don't want to speculate why that wasn't the case. But as a, as a quarterback, as a former SC player, that is one that uh, is con- confusing to me. And so little t- intangible factors like that are, I think, always interesting. But as always, a lot of factors at play. It's a great point, and this week, in fact, as we were all doing our Jackson Dart stories and asking about Dart and getting perspective from teammates and coaches, the thing you kept hearing was this natural leadership quality. Graham Harrell mentioned, he, he goes, even as, you know, remember Graham couldn't scout him in person last year due to the pandemic recruiting rules. He couldn't even meet with him, but he said, you know, even watching him on film, you could, you could just see this quality of how teammates responded to him how he made people around him better and you know we hear comments like that all the time but when you hear it over and over again it starts to resonate we talked to Keontae Ingram who was always just a very unvarnished uh honest good fun quote and he goes that dude's got crazy confidence especially being a young guy he's been like that actually since he stepped on campus everyone can feel it too people feed off that I feel like that's what the receivers and the offense are doing everybody loves him he's just an outgoing guy you don't get that too much uh, very, very telling quotes from a, a veteran, you know, senior who's been around about a freshman. So those are kind of the comments about this, you know, intangible leadership quality that Dart has. And maybe, you know, Keaton Slobos is not, it's, that's not natural to him to, to be that the rah-rah guy. And I think at a certain point you have to be who you are. It's hard to fake that stuff. And there are certainly great quarterbacks that are not that way. So it's not an essential to the position, but that could be a reason why he wasn't voted the team captain and the reason why that teammates are talking about Jackson Dart this way, even though he's only played in three games. And I think it's it's important. Those leadership and, you know, having a grasp on the locker room, that goes a long way. I've said this many times on this podcast, but when we when our team had success in 2016 after going one and three, 
um, so much of it was the leaders that we had on that team. We had great captains, and that goes a long way, especially when you know your your, your coach gets fired. At the end of the day, like the leadership in that locker room um, plays a big factor in how guys respond. So I think it's uh, a point spot on. The only thing I would add too is I remember sitting here a few years back and comparing the leadership skills of a JT Daniels and a Keaton Slovis. And it was pretty evident. I think JT is a great guy. I don't really know him personally, but you could tell that natural outgoing leadership was not in his wheelhouse. That was not part of his personality. That was not his MO. And when you compared that with Keaton, you said, Oh wow, this guy's much more lively. Oh, he will be a guy that will grow into that leadership position at USC. You could just at least, Back then, you could say, oh, it's just a classic SC quarterback. He's going to be a leader like a insert big-time SC quarterback. And so it's funny now, three years later, when you thought that was going to be his edge, now that feels like that uh, is something that he needs to work on and grow on. And it's something that, to Jackson's credit, he's got that confidence and that, that bug. And hey, as he becomes even older, that's going to be even more impactful, especially as young recruits come in and follow his direction and feel that vibe. That's a great sign for, for SC. If, if Jackson is the guy of the future, having that, that mold in the locker room will go a long way. No, you're totally right. We were talking about Keaton that way in contrast to JT. And I, I actually thought about that earlier this week uh, when all this all these comments about Jackson were coming out. I'm like, man, you know, a few years ago, we were kind of yeah. we were kind of pitching Keaton as the as the uh, antithesis to, to JT in, in that mode. Obviously, I, I've just somehow been uh, morphed into the ultimate Keaton Slovis apologist. There's there's really no reason for it other than that I just think it's unfortunate what's happened to him, and I think that the reaction's been a little too extreme. I think if he had those four NFL receivers you mentioned, if he had Austin Jackson and Elijah Vera Tucker on his left side, maybe he's still that same quarterback from 2019. But... He does bear culpability. He's made some bad throws this year, and um, he didn't do enough to totally quell all this dart uprising. What I hope is that he sees what you see and that he's just kind of made peace with the situation and, and knows, okay, uh, I, I thought maybe I was going to be a draft pick this year. Maybe I just accept that this is uh, the way this has gone, and I know that next year I have a new shot somewhere to really show myself. My only thought on why it would still be a decision is if he transfers somewhere and gets hurt or something, now you're like two years removed from having that buzz. And I just don't know how easy it is to recover at that point. But right, though, if if he is one of the top free agent transfers and can go to a place that is ready-made for success, then I think he will step in and show what I still believe he is as a quarterback, and that would definitely benefit his draft stock. When you say you think he's he's the number one free agent, you rank him ahead of uh, Spencer Rattler? That's a good question. Um, I personally do, but... Yeah, I mean, it's it's neck and neck for me. And when I said that comment, I forgot, to, I forgot about the other Arizona high school QB in Rattler who's uh, probably going to be in the market. Um, I would probably give the edge to Rattler just because I think his slight edge in mobility might give uh, coaches that, that added edge, but I mean, it's, it, it's right there for me. And, and you mentioned the, you know, him missing the four NFL receivers and if maybe he had a different coaching situation play out, things would be different for Keaton. But I, I also view it the inverse as well in terms of, Hey, Keaton without argument is better than three fourths of the quarterbacks in this conference. 
And there are fan bases around this conference that would take Keaton in a heartbeat. Fan bases that have more wins than USC. And so the whole Keaton Slovis apologist, I mean, I guess put me in that as well. Because I think the criticism is not always just and has not been just this season. I think there, we, we talked about this a bunch in terms of there being other issues at play that any quarterback, I don't care how good you are, would have to deal with. And the classic flashy toy of the, the, the backup freshman has only compounded that, uh, that criticism. Yeah, and, and, and there's no need to keep beating the drum. I think everyone knows where I stand on that, and it's it's probably moot at this point. It probably is going to be Jackson Dart the rest of the way. Dante Williams was undefinitive on whether he thought that Keaton Slovis's unspecified lower leg injury was season-ending or not, uh, but he didn't practice the last two weeks. I will say that I don't think there's been any tension between Dart and Slovis personally, just from everything I've heard. They get along really well. I thought it was notable on Tuesday. They came out of the tunnel to practice together, uh, walking side by side, talking about things. Jackson Darts made point several times to note that that Keaton's been very helpful with him, even even through this maybe complicated period where they're sharing the job and and now he's being replaced. It's Lovis has been very helpful and Jackson ready. So I don't think there's any tension there. And whatever Keaton does, we will – see how it plays out, and uh, maybe the, the Slovis apologist will be validated down the road. But we can certainly shelve that for the rest of the year. We made our points. It is Jackson Dart's spotlight. And there's one more point I forgot to mention about Dart that I think is really interesting, and it's not even about this game or this moment, but I got to thinking this week. I, you know, I mentioned that Dart's recruitment went down to the wire, whereas uh, ultimately USC and UCLA – but for a long time, it was a three-team race with Arizona State in there. And what a statement on just how unpredictable and wild recruiting is. That those were the three programs, the three coaching staffs that Jackson Dart was weighing heavily to to attach his future to. And now all three might be replaced when the season's over, depending on what happens at UCLA and Arizona State. But uh, the people I talked to at Arizona State fully expect Herm Edwards to not return next year. And certainly there's a lot of smoke and fire under Chip Kelly's seat at UCLA. We'll see how they finish. But a year ago, a top quarterback is evaluating those three programs, those three coaching staffs, taking into account you know who's the most stable. And a year later, all three could be gone. And that's just why recruiting is such a tough game from both sides, from both the evaluation side and from the player uh, prospect side of trying to determine where is the stability, where is my future best at, and there's just so many unpredictable unpredictable variables. And I think that Dart's particular situation really illustrates that to a high degree. Before we get to the matchup preview, there's one more debate I wanted to get you the way in on, and we've been having it on the message board. And In fact, I had it with some uh, fellow reporters at practice this week where people have wondered if USC would have been better served to fire Clay Helton later. And that if I firing him so early, it actually has had a negative impact on everything, on, on the team. Um, I think not, and I'll make my points and then we'll get you the way in. I think it was the right move to move on after that Week 2 game. I think part of it was probably inspired by the administration not wanting to have fans booing lustily at Helton in the Coliseum every week or to have – uh, planes with banners flying over the stadium to fire Helton. You know, that Stanford game had sent things to a fever pitch again 
that was going to be the narrative every week is is are they going to fire Helton? Is this Helton's last season? How much longer does he last? And they removed that cloud by doing it quickly. People say, well, did it hurt recruiting to do it that early? I say, no, it helped recruiting. If they kept him all year, all you were going to hear, all, all recruits were going to hear about was, you know, this coaching staff is going to get fired. You don't want to go there. You know, he's he's on his last legs. He's a lame duck coach. At least by firing him, they can sell the the optimism of, hey, we're going to have a reset. We're going to have a new coach coming in. It's going to be exciting. Just uh, hang with us for a couple months, and we'll see who we get. But it's going to be a new start. That's a much better sales pitch than trying to have Clay Helton and his staff saying, hey, come play for us. I think it helped in both regards. And then it gave Mike Bone and Brandon Sosna all this time to vet candidates in the back channel. And maybe you don't need two and a half months to do that, but I think it's better than having you know two weeks at the end of a season to do it. You can say, well, well, couldn't they just back channel anyway? Well, no, you can't because what if it gets out? You talk to enough agents behind the scenes of, hey, we're thinking about making a change. Would your guy be interested? And one of those guys leaks it out. Now you have a PR nightmare where you have a sitting head coach who you have not fired, but you're it's being revealed that you're talking to other coaching candidates. So just just make the clean cut early like they did. I think it was the best move. They've had all this time now to do whatever behind the scenes they needed to do to get ready to make a coaching hire hopefully soon. And I don't know that this season would have been demonstratively different with Clay Helton. I do think that Dante Williams has been shown to be a little over his head with this. And uh, I think the handling of the QB situation was very much mismanaged and it may have had a detriment on this team. But overall, I don't think that this team went from a 8-4 and four team to a 4-8 and eight team because they fired Clay Helton in Week 2. Max? I'm right with you. Yeah, I think the thought process that the team would be better off if you held on to Clay Helton longer, I think it's ridiculous. And just looking down the, the schedule, I mean, so Helton gets let go after Stanford. Well, two weeks later, you have a horrible loss to Oregon State. Just wrote, uh, imagine the headlines that would be surrounding the program then. You mentioned the cloud. Well, it would be a absolutely thundering cloud. It wouldn't. It wouldn't even be. It wouldn't even be. Oh, they're going to fire Helton, which is what it would have been maybe after Stanford. It would have been USC's a joke. What's this program doing? This athletic department is awful and terrible. It would have been much worse than just hey, that the staffs are getting fired. And it would have looked horrible on the program, it would have looked horrible on the school, and it would have only gotten worse, especially when you flash forward even two weeks later when you had the Utah win as well. And I think, or the Utah loss, excuse me. And I think the, the counter to my argument there would be, oh, well, Max, what if they would have fought for, for Clay or, you know, they would have they would have been rallying for him? Well, we thought that was going to be the narrative with Dante, and at times we have not necessarily seen the, the, the team respond to that. So... By no means would the team have been better, the program been better if Helton was, uh, you know, held on. I think it would have made the, the, the team look worse. And that cloud, like you mentioned, would have been as dark. And, I mean, take it from me firsthand. I remember back in 2015, Sark got let go, obviously, week three or whatever that was uh, of that season. Well, you ask any guy in that locker room, we knew the issues were getting bad a couple months before that. We, we knew it was only a matter of time. We knew the cloud that was over that program just with issues going on and it was a ticking time bomb and you can make the argument that uh that's that that decision should have happened earlier but if it hadn't let's say you know that that whole sarc ordeal was uh, elongated a couple more months 
that whole cloud would have been detrimental to that team. And as a result, you're able to move forward. And especially when you know something's inevitable, I feel like in sports, it never does you any good to hang on to it. We're seeing that right now with the quarterback situation. Ron, you alluded to it. I think the staff knew they always wanted to go with Jackson, but they tried to dance the fine line of going both. you got to go with your gut. Don't string things out because in the end, I feel like it makes it worse. I think Dante always knew he wanted to go with Jackson. I still would love to get Graham Harrell's honest thoughts and all this. I I still hold the belief that – Pac-12 next year, so I can ask him that question. <laughs> exactly, exactly. But but one, one more point on, on the on the Helton firing timeline, and you kind of hinted at it with the administration. It allowed them to send a strong message that hey, you know, we're not messing around here. We have high expectations. We're making this move, and you can relitigate the last couple of years and why the move wasn't made then. And we've had that discussion before, and there are reasons why maybe the timing wasn't right. Maybe they didn't have full clearance to do what they wanted to do they did this year and they didn't mess around and they didn't need to see much before they said okay yep we're cutting the cord and starting anew so uh we're on the same page i think it was the right move and there's always going to be collateral damage when you make a in-season coaching change like there's, there's no smooth way to do it where everything is is you know, perfect and fine and, and maximized so i just it's, it's a lost season i wouldn't fret about it the future is the future. The future is the, the new head coach and what happens at that point to say, could this team have been one or two wins better? I mean, ultimately, who cares? It, it is what it is. Okay, let's get on to UCLA and break this game down. Max, you kind of already hinted at the Bruins kind of up and down schedule. I just want to run through this roller coaster of their season. They started out 2-0 and and they beat LSU and everyone's having the conversation of, Chip Kelly's got it rolling. This is the year that he he truly breaks out UCLA. Then, then they lose to Fresno State. They lose to Fresno State, 40-37. Ouch. They beat Stanford. Then they get blown out by ASU. They beat Arizona and Washington. And then they lose to Oregon after having a 14-0 lead. They get blown out by Utah. They beat Colorado. What do you make of this team? The Arizona State loss was the worst one to me. That that felt like the fork in the road for their for their season because you lose to Fresno State, but at that time, and even even still, I know Fresno State isn't ranked, but that, that's a that's a solid team. I mean, at that time, Fresno State was you know doing some good things, so that wasn't as bad as it might look when we fast forward a year or whatnot. But Stanford was a solid solid win. Stanford's taken a turn for the worst the, the past month, but the ASU win. Getting back to that. That feels like that was the direction where the season could go one of two ways, whether you're still in the hunt or not. And it feels like the rest of the way they kind of lost the games they were supposed to lose and they won the games they were supposed to win. And in terms of Chip Kelly's seat, I mean, they, they, they make a bowl game. That's got to be worth something. It'll be fascinating to see if uh, it's worth enough for him to keep his job. But this is just a middle-of-the-road type of Pac-12 team. They can be very good on some nights. They can stub their toe on other nights. I think they have talent on the offensive side of the ball. They have athleticism and guys that can get after you on the defensive side of the ball, but by no means is this a uh, juggernaut Pac-12 team like we thought early on in the season. Well, let's break it down. Offense first. Uh, a lot of familiar names that USC fans know well. The Bruins do average 33.4 points per game, led by senior quarterback Dorian Thompson-Robinson, who maybe hasn't uh, taken the leap that people thought he might take over the years. But he's passed for 1,896 yards, 14 touchdowns, 4 picks, and has rushed for 461 yards and 7 touchdowns. 
One stat that jumped out to me, though, is that his completion percentage is down five points from last year, where we thought maybe he was getting a little more accurate last year, and now it's dropped back down to 60.3. Max, what is your assessment of DTR and where he's at in his career? I have liked how he's performed in the turnover column. To me, that's been the biggest column or the biggest talking point for him the past few years is, all right, the good is great, but the bad is the dumb turnovers and things of that nature. And the talking point was always, hey, if he can clean that up, hey, he's going to take the next step. Well, he has cleaned up the turnover area, but like you alluded to, it hasn't been as efficient as I think Bruin fans would have hoped. To me, I think Chip Kelly looks at his offense and says, hey, I absolutely love my running backs and Zach Charbonnet and Britton Brown arguably the best one-two punch in the conference. I'm sure a couple of schools would have something to say about that, but those guys are studs. And as a result, I think the offense has taken the ball out of Dorian's hands a little bit. They're asking him to not do as much, lean more on the run game. And that's why I think you you haven't seen the stats pop for uh, DTR as much. But, hey, the thing he is doing well is he's protecting the football. It hasn't been as bad as, as years past, but... Um, once again, similar in a similar light as Keaton. Hey, a few years ago, we were thinking DTR could be one of the top dual threat quarterbacks in the country, and that hasn't really come to fruition. You mentioned Charbonnet and Brown. They have combined for 1,479 rushing yards and 18 touchdowns. It was a question on the board back in the spring when Charbonnet transferred to UCLA from Michigan and USC picked up Keontae Ingram from Texas on who got the better running back. How would you weigh in on that now at this point in the season? I mean, i got to give the edge to Charbonnet just out of respect, but I think a lot of it's conducive to the offense that he's in. They, you, you, When you watch their offense roll, you feel that they are leaning heavily on what Charbonnet brings to the table. They're giving him every opportunity to be the, the workhorse for that offense. Brent Brown's no slouch, too. They, they don't miss a beat when he's in there. Both those backs are physical. They're bigger. I like how patient Charbonnet is as well. Chip, I mean, classic Chip Kelly, they'll utilize him in the passing game. This is the running group that has to concern you the most if you're SC because UCLA runs the rock really well. USC has hurt at times on the ground. I think the SC linebackers are really going to be tested this week. I mean, you got the run game, and then Chip loves – utilizing play action off of that and here's a nice little lead into the next position group uh, ucla has a great slot in kyle phillips and they have one of the best tight ends in the country and uh, greg dulcich as well so there's going to be a ton of pressure on the linebackers for sc this week yeah two more very familiar names to usc fans those guys have made big plays in the series in previous years phillips has uh, 627 receiving yards six touchdowns Dolchich, 564 and four touchdowns. It's it's a, it's a concerning matchup for the USC defense. Uh, then again, most matchups are concerning for this defense, but this one is, is very concerning. And we talked to Todd Orlando this week, and he was asked, you know, you had this unexpected extra bye week. What did you focus on, you know, trying to improve? And he just kind of shrugged his shoulders and goes, oh, you know, the tackling. Nothing's going to change at this point. They have shown some belated willingness to mix things up in the secondary where we saw Xavier Alford getting more playing time, Kalen Bullock role growing in practice on Tuesday when the first team defense came out. Both Isaiah Polamau and Chase Williams were with the second unit and Alford and Bullock were the starting safeties. So they are finally making some tweaks there and, and some changes 
But this defense is not going to fix itself at this point in the season. They've had uh, every chance to show if they could turn it around, and it's just not happened. And for a bad tackling team and a team that just often has very back-breaking breakdowns, I think this is going to be a shootout or it's going to have to be a shootout for USC to have a chance. I'm with you. Yeah, especially offensively for SC, Jackson Dart running game they got to get going because i feel like if you're a ucla fan you're also looking at this offense a little concerned as well i really like ucla's defense to start the season i thought they did a good job utilizing their athleticism and mixing things up but at times this year you've seen teams put up points put up yards i don't think this ucla front is productive i think they rely on the back end a lot and if that's the case that's an opportunity for you know keontae to get going and other guys to get going as well. I mean, just looking at their schedule right here, Colorado was able to put up 20 points. That's an offense that's not very good. Utah destroyed them. Uh, ASU got after them as well. Oregon did some really good things. That was a fastback game for Anthony Brown as well. So, hey, it's 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 both ways there. I like your call about it uh, looking like a potential shootout. One of the other intriguing storylines to me is a carryover from the last game, just the young receivers. And we did see that in that Arizona State game, they did really spread the targets around. Uh, of course, Gary Bryant and Taj Washington were the clear one-two. But then there was a lot of balance beyond that with Kyle Ford and Malcolm Epps and Michael Jackson third, and Joseph Manjack and uh, Lake McCree at tight end. Just a lot of guys got touches. Unfortunately, none of them really pounced or seize their opportunities to the point where they emerged out of that pack. We kind of reset it this week, and I'll be curious to see how those guys work. I'm really intrigued by Michael Jackson III in particular, and if you, uh, fans recall that he was kind of the one of the breakout positives of the spring and didn't have quite the same impact in fall camp. Again, in the spring, they were really thin at receiver, so he had ample opportunity and really maximized it. But after practice Tuesday, Everyone else was off the field except for Jackson Dart and Michael Jackson III getting a few final passes in. They're roommates. They're very close. In that spring game, it was Dart who had two big you know, completions to Michael Jackson III. He's my wild card this week, and I'm just curious if this could be the, the launching pad for him. One of those guys needs to seize the opportunity. It's there. I mean, you get the sense that Graham is, 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 is desperate. He, he wants a guy to emerge. He wants – a receiver to, you know, be dynamic in those one-on-one op- opportunities. Uh, you're, you're spot on with Gary and Taj kind of getting the benefit of the doubt. But after that, I mean, you're seeing all the guys that are getting rotated in. I think it's because the, the staff doesn't have the answer. The margin between receiver one and receiver six is, I think, as tight as maybe any year in, uh, in recent memory. I think that the position group that's – the most head-scratching for me is the, the tight end position as well because I know Graham likes his tight end position in terms of that's why he's doing more 12 personnel than probably he's done throughout his career. Yeah, when those guys get out there, they're not productive. And when you talk about an Epps, when you talk about, I mean, we know good old trusty Eric Kromanoff, but even like a, a Jude Wolf or, uh, you know, um, I know I know Trigg's been, 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 been banged up and whatnot, but you haven't seen any of those tight ends really emerge as of late and it, like you mentioned Lake McCree as well well when he's in that game like a lot of those guys are pass catching type of dudes I love for those guys to take the next step in blocking in the run game 
but also be a weapon in the passing game because I think that takes pressure off the receiving unit as well. So it's not just when we're talking receivers, yes, it's the receiver group, but the tight ends, man, those guys need to find a way to get catches and get involved. Yep. I think if you look back on it, Malcolm Epps is probably the guy that we expected more of who hasn't quite delivered on that. He has had some costly drops along the way, which I'm sure has probably set him back. Uh, but he, he just hasn't quite been the same force that we were led to believe he might be this year. There's still a few games left, and we'll see what happens. But definitely uh, plenty of subplots in this game, whether it's Dart, whether it's young receivers, whether it's Ingram getting back on track, whether it's just the, the rivalry game. There is a lot of intrigue this week, and um, I don't know how much there will be the next. Right now the biggest offseason question, if, we, if the season ended tomorrow, it would be, all right, who's going to be receiver one for SC? Where does receiver group go? Well, hey, these next three weeks – could play a huge role in giving us clarity there. Yeah. Gary Bryant, what's the future like for you? Are you a slot receiver? Are you an outside receiver? Are you going to be the next USC great, or are you always going to be a covering receiver? Taj Washington, how does your game evolve and develop? I know he's been on the outside so far, but moving forward with a new scheme, I could totally see him moving inside. All those other guys that you mentioned, I mean, it's crazy. The list is almost like 10 or 12 long. These next three weeks go a long way in deciding – I think uh, who, who's the, the, the first group going out there in spring ball under likely a new staff and who are the names we're going to be talking about going into the, going into the fall and guys we're going to be seeing scoring touchdowns next year. Absolutely. All right. Prediction time. Max, what is your score prediction for Saturday? Ooh, we talked about a shootout. I'll, uh, I'll stay consistent there. Unfortunately, I don't think USC gets the win. I think uh, UCLA has too many weapons offensively, has enough to hold up defensively. I think it is 38-28 USC. I don't know if that classifies as a shootout, only scoring four times, but 38-28 UCLA. Right. UCLA, UCLA. I was going to clarify that. Okay, gotcha. I'm going 44-38 to UCLA. So... I, hey, there'll be fireworks then. It'll be an entertaining one. Yeah, it's, it's just unfortunately it's it's just too hard to uh, pick the Trojans at this point in the season to win a game, but they could certainly surprise us. Max, before we go, just want to get your thoughts. We're getting down to the wire in the coaching search, and all the buzz right now. If you ask fans who's top of your list right now, Dave Aranda, the Baylor head coach, has just surged up all these hot boards and, and wish lists and everything else. What is your take on Dave Aranda as USC's potential next head coach? Initial take as an offensive guy myself, uh, a defensive coach, almost being equal, I would prefer an offensive coach. I think that makes things easier because now lots of Dave Aranda's success is going to be dependent on the offensive coordinator that he hires. As I say that out loud, I know there's a lot of SC fans that are saying, well, Max, Pete Carroll is a defensive guy. So true, fair. But if Dave does get the job, then, hey, question number one and two and three is who's going to be calling plays for you. So I think he's a hot name. I think he's done uh, done things well at, uh, at, at Baylor. I'd be good with it. I'm cool with it. But defensive coaches, that's always the, the tough part. You're seeing it up there in uh, Washington a little bit as well. Um, with Jimmy Lake, hey, yes, he did some things off the field that weren't great, but his downfall is going to be because of his offensive coordinator hire. So that's one of mine for me. 
I guess we'll see what happens. I just hung out with Jonathan Smith all day this, this past Friday. I know he was on the, the board a little bit uh, a month or so ago. I don't think he's on the board anymore, but he's maybe my dark horse pick. I like Jonathan Smith, and I think he's doing some good things at Oregon State, but I know there's a lot of SC fans that that, that doesn't have the, uh, the flash that uh, Trojan fans need. Yeah, no, he definitely is doing a great job there. I think if he had sustained their hot start a little bit better, he might have truly been uh, in the mix on this thing. But uh, that would be a surprise at this point, but certainly got to watch in future years. We will hopefully be coming back in a couple of weeks maybe and breaking down that coaching hire and saying this is our guy. And Ryan, what's your over-under on uh, timeline? If I say uh, December, December 5th, before or after? Announcement. Oh boy. Um, <laughs> yeah, I'm trying to think of when all the conference championship games are because I I do yeah. think I think, I think that the conference championship games are December fourth, so I'll, I'll push it back. December eighth. Do you think we have our head man by then? December eighth, I definitely go before. Yes, I do. Absolutely. Right. I, I think it'll be that Sunday, Monday, right after the conference title games. And that's a part, part of that is me believing that Dave Aranda is probably the most likely candidate and that he will be in that Big 12 championship game most likely. So that's kind of what I'm basing it on. Again, though, uh, we put our hot board up earlier this week, our latest version, and I, I did it based on not what I expect, but what my preference would still be. And for me, it's still Luke Fickle 1, Matt Campbell 2, and then Dave Aranda 3. But I, I think Aranda is the most likely of that bunch. It'll be fun to track. All right. We'll get back with you in a, a week or two or whenever. We have more to talk about, and we always enjoy it. Thanks, Max. Awesome. Thanks, Ryan.